Welcome. We're glad you're here today. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you joined us this morning for worship. If, uh, if you're visiting with us today, we'd love for you to fill out a card. We call it a Connect card. It should be in the, few, the, the pew in front of you. And you can just let us know that you're here. Any ways we can connect with you, any areas that you might uh, be interested in us connecting with you on. Any areas of prayer that we could pray for you uh, this week, uh, please write that down. You could drop that in the offering box uh, by the Welcome Center in the foyer. Uh, a couple things to uh, let you or remind you of or give you a heads up on. Uh, last week, we had a, a baptism service here where we saw two uh, young ladies get baptized. And we also then welcomed in two other uh, men into our church membership. And their names are listed this week in the, uh, the print edition of the, the weekly uh, announcements. Uh, Al Block, Joanna, Johanna Heron, uh, Skylar Parrott, and Alex Vasher are our four uh, new members. And so if you didn't get a chance last week, please welcome them uh, into the, our, our church membership, into our church family, uh, if you would. Uh, a couple other things going on here uh, in the next uh, few uh, weeks. want to let you know about next Sunday... October the 30th, we're going to have a church family game night. We did this earlier this year already. We're going to do it again uh, Sunday night from 5 to 7. Uh, we'll be playing games just right here in, in the foyer primarily, uh, board games. You can bring a game. We'll have some games uh, that you could play here too. If you have a favorite game you'd like to come, uh, come with and, and maybe a new game to teach someone, that, that's uh, good too. Uh, if, you're, if you're not into games, you just want to come for the food, we're asking everyone to bring something to, to share to eat, and so you can just eat, and that's fine too. We'd love for you to uh, hang out and just a, a time for us to be together. Uh, we, uh, we, we know the value of that. We know what it's like to not have it, and so we, we look for times and, and ways where we can spend some time together as a church family, and, and this is one that we think is, is, could be valuable. It was a good time last time, and we, we're hopeful that it will be again. Um, also, next Sunday is the last Sunday to sign up for the Forgotten Man, or what is now called Reach the Forgotten Jail Ministry Benefit Dinner uh, Banquet. That sign-up is on the, uh, the Welcome Center. The church is sponsoring a table, so there's eight seats available there if you'd like to uh, go uh, to that. More details are on the Welcome Center. Uh, the final thing I have for this morning is uh, a little further out yet. November 17th, this is hard to believe we're thinking about November, but we are. On November 17th, that's a Thursday, we're going to host here at the church a, a grief share uh, program and dinner. It's called Surviving the Holidays. And uh, uh, Mike Tharp and Barb Jenshek are going to co-lead that event. They've done this before, been a couple years with, with COVID and, and all of that since we've done this. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know as well as I do that there are many who are, are grieving. And uh, we have many here in our own church family who are grieving. And uh, this isn't just for our church. This is an event that uh, we're inviting the community to, to participate if they'd like to. Uh, information there on, on how to... Uh, register for that is is in uh, in the paper edition there of the weekly, and we'd love for you to uh, to consider joining us. There's some again, there's some more information, or you can talk to Barb. Barb is right here. I don't think Mike is here, but Barb is right down front. Okay, Barb's right down front. If you'd like to talk to her today uh, about any more of those uh, those details, that's all I have. Pastor Chris has one more thing before we get going. Uh, you may have seen or been greeted by uh, the pumpkins on your way in. Um, we had uh, about uh, 30 or so students for our fall frenzy yesterday, where we did uh, a number of different activities, uh, festive stuff, sack races, pumpkin carving contests, corn maze, that kind of stuff. Ate a lot of donuts and cider. That's just what you do, right? Uh, the thing that I am asking, which I've seen people have already been doing, so I guess I don't even have to announce, but uh, the pumpkins are numbered, and on the Welcome Center are some little orange papers, uh, and we would like for you to vote for your favorite. And uh, then on Wednesday, we'll, at youth group, we'll uh, let the students know whose pumpkin wins the pumpkin carving contest. So if you'd like to help out in that way, we'd encourage you to uh, vote until the papers are gone. Students, you're not supposed to vote. That's just how it works. You don't vote for yourself, right? 
So anyway, invite you to uh, be a part of that uh, with us here today if you uh, so choose. Uh, otherwise, let's uh, get started here in worship together. Would you stand with me for our call to worship? Our call to worship comes from Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 1022. 1022. Before we begin, would you bow with me in prayer? Prepare our hearts, O oh God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own that hearing, we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a familiar parable, a familiar story about loving your neighbor. It's in response to a question that he was asked after he tells what the, the greatest and the second greatest command are, to love God, to love your neighbor. The question comes to him, then, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus says these words. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. It's not enough just to know about love. It's not enough just to talk about love. It's not even enough to teach about love. None of those are the same things to actually loving. None of those are the actually the same thing to being moved by compassion to love someone. Jesus here in Luke 10 identified several responses of the man on the road. Right? We have the robbers who see the man and take advantage of him take from him what he has, as well as nearly taking his life. We see the religious leaders, the priest and the Levites, their indifference towards someone who had a need. And finally, we see the Samaritan, who was an outsider, who was moved with compassion to act. Well, in our passage this morning, John uses a similar, or points out similar responses that Jesus showed us in this parable. John shows us the response of hate and murder, the response of indifference, and the response of love. Dr. David Allen writes, one key evidence of spiritual maturity is in our lives is the depth of our love for one another. 
One key evidence of spiritual maturity in our lives is the depth of our love for one another. In chapter 3, verse 10, John reintroduced the theme of love, which he has talked about already and will talk about again in chapter 4. But if you just look back at verse 10, chapter 3, John writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Verse 10 serves to close out uh, John's first contrasts. In the first contrast we looked at last week was this contrast between sin and righteousness, between the practice of sinning and the practice of righteous living. This verse also serves to, to begin the second contrast between love and hate. Uh, one commentator simply but, but helpfully outlines this passage verses 11 through 24, with three statements, and they will serve as our outline this morning. Verses 11 through 15 tells us what love is not. Verses 16 through 18 tell us what love is. And verses 19 through 24 will tell us what love does for believers. So let's begin in verse 11 as we see what love is not. First, verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What's the message? It's, it's, the, it's an announcement. This is the, the message. This is the message of love, we could say. This is the gospel message that calls Christians to what? To love one another. For this is the message. You need to look to the, the end of that sentence. What's the message? That we should love one another. That's the message. Now, in contrast with love, John then describes, um, uses... Uh, came to describe what love is not, or as an example. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because, uh, because his deeds, of his own deeds, were evil, and his brother's righteous. Here John reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches all the way back to the beginning, right? All the way back to Genesis chapter 4 to illustrate the contrast between love and hate. Cain, John tells us, was of the evil one or of the devil. And he subsequently murdered his brother. You remember this story? Both brothers brought to God an offering, a sacrifice. They brought to God an offering but only one of the brothers' offering was accepted by God. Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. In hatred of his brother, Cain took Abel's life. He murdered him. Interestingly, in Genesis, excuse me, in yeah, Genesis 4, Cain is not presented as an atheist. Right? Cain brings an offering. Cain brings his offering to God too. What, what are we to make of that? Warren Wearsby writes, children of the devil masquerade as true believers. They say that seems kind of harsh. Again, kind of judgy of you, Pastor Mark. But what we find is that Cain's condition was revealed in his action. We said this last week. But watch people and they will tell you who they are. How do we know who people are? By what they do. By how they live. Some people say, well, well, well God looks at the heart and man looks at the outward appearance. Yeah, that's right. Man looks on the outward appearance. So the outward appearance apparently does matter. That's how we understand who you are. Out of the abundance of the mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Right? We show who we are on the inside by how we live on the outside. That's how it works. And Cain shows or reveals his spiritual condition as he murders his brother. He masquerade as, as, as a child of God until it is that he didn't. That's until he you know, killed his brother. Right? Then, then the mask was off, right? Then it became abundantly obvious that Cain was a child of the evil one. 
Well, John continues, verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't, don't marvel that the world hates you, right? As, as Cain hated Abel, so the world will hate Christians. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Being a Christian puts us in opposition with the world. Why? Because the values of the world conflict with the way of Jesus. That's just how it works. That doesn't mean everybody in the world is going to hate you. That doesn't mean that every, every unsaved person hates you. That's not what it means. It means that the, the way of the world is in conflict with the way of Jesus. And when, when push comes to shove, there is going to be trouble. There's going to be a conflict. There's going to be opposition. Well, verse 14 continues the contrast. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Love for the brothers here is evidence of conversion. Right? That's, what, that's what John is saying. It's evidence that we have in his language passed out of death into life. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, this is Jesus, has eternal life. He who does not come, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's the language of conversion, isn't it? Passing from death into life. How do we know if we've passed from death into life, according to John, verse 14? Because we love the brothers. That's the evidence of our conversion. It's evidence of the change. It's evidence that the gospel has actually given us new life, new birth. We are not saved because we love. Let's be clear. We love because we're saved. Nobody loves their way into salvation. The response of loving your brothers is because you've passed from death unto life. And this is the contrast. Now, we ought to, to, um, to know that loving is not the same as liking, right? Um, there are people who, for any number of reasons, you may not like. And I have news for you. There are people, uh, for any number of reasons, who may not like you. <laughs> now, here's the reality, though. that Those things ought not to be, right, among the people of God. They ought not to be, but they are. They, in fact, are. Whether it's a, a matter of experience, a matter of personality, a matter of, of many different things, it is true. Nevertheless, we are to love the brothers. We are to love one another. We are to love our neighbor. We're to love our enemy. One writer, J.R. Miller, says, if we claim to be Christians, we may not choose whom we love. We don't get to decide who we love, Christian. We are to love the brothers. In fact, this command is, is all the more applicable for those that we don't like. Right? Jesus says that it doesn't really take anything to love somebody who, who's lovable. Yeah, that's easy. Even a sinner can do that. Even someone who doesn't know Jesus can, can love people who, don't, who, who love them back. The, the, the real change the real Christian love is that you love the people who don't love you back. You, you love the people who aren't so kind to you. To love someone that you may not like is to treat them as though you do. It's not to lie. It's to choose. Love is a choice, right? Love is first a choice, and we choose to love. And why do we do that? Because God in Christ so loved us. Because he showed us kindness. When? When we loved him? No. When we didn't love him. When we were his enemy. He showed us kindness. He showed us love. And so if we run around the world as a Christian and say, well, they, they, they're not nice to me, so I'm not going to be nice to them. Or they don't love me, so I'm not going to love them. That is not Christian love. That is, that is quite the opposite of Christian love. Opposite of what Christ has done. And it shows to us whether or not we've actually been changed by Christ's love. That we've, we've passed from death unto life. Well, conversely, the rest of verse 14 and 15 say, Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so here, John carries the idea of, of hate for your brother. He carries this idea that Jesus started back in Matthew chapter 5, that hating your brother is equivalent to murder. Like lust is equivalent to adultery, right? That just because you may not physically murder someone, you could be a murderer at heart. He says that, that, that both are a problem. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. It, it's no innocent thing to hate someone. One commentator says this, whosoever one hates, one wishes to be dead. We want to be very careful about who we hate or who we say that we hate. Hatred of others has no place among Christians. A murderer or a murderer, a murderer at heart has no confidence, according to John here, of eternal life. Now, we want to say that that does not mean that a murderer cannot have eternal life. It means that a murderer, an unrepentant murderer, or someone who continues in their murder does not have confidence of eternal life. There's no confidence there. There's no evidence of what? Passing from death unto life. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 reminds us of this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes murderers. That includes adulterers. That includes liars. And all the rest. For whoever, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You may hear John's words and say, man, I, I'm a pretty bad person. I, I have hated people in my life. Maybe, maybe you identify there. Maybe you question whether or not you have any confidence of eternal life. And maybe you should. But here's how you can know. You can actually have confidence today. This is the good news. It's not all bad news. We could leave you there today. <laughs> we could leave you there. But the Bible doesn't leave you there. Jesus doesn't leave you there. And thank God that he doesn't. Because he came not just to tell us that we're in trouble. He came not just to tell us that we have a sin problem. He came to do that. He didn't come just to do that. He came to say, because you have a sin problem, I have come to be the Savior that you need. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But we must know but the one who continues in hate demonstrates that they have no fellowship with God and that they remain or they abide in death. Romans 8 verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, from here, John then describes what love is in verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16. By this we know love. What's the this? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This we know love. Again, the word love here is the word agape. It is the word that means unconditional or self-sacrificial love. By this we know love. Okay, again, in contrast with what he just said about Cain, what did Cain do? Cain murdered his brother. He took his life. In contrast to that, we see here Jesus who laid down his life. Cain saw what he wanted and he took it. Jesus gave up his life so that we might have it. John points to Jesus as the perfect example of love as he voluntarily laid down his own life for us. John writes in his gospel, chapter 10, verse 17, for this is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up. Jesus is speaking here. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus laid down his life for us. C.H. Spurgeon writes, Ah, Lord Jesus, I never knew thy love until I understood the meaning of thy death. I never knew thy love until I understood the meaning of thy death. That's good. 
Maybe you've yet to understand the meaning of his death. Here's the meaning of his death. He laid down his life for you. Voluntarily. Substitution. He did it for you in your place. He gave his life that you might have life. Jesus is not just an example for us to follow. He is the one through whom we have life. I wonder this morning if you have life. I wonder this morning if if you know and understand the meaning of his death. I wonder this morning if you know Jesus as your savior. If you know that you are a sinner and that the only hope that you have is Jesus. If you don't, then this morning I want you to know that he is the savior that you need. He has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come not to condemn, but to save. And if you will but repent and believe, you can know him too. If you are trusting Christ this morning, then the evidence will be this. The evidence will be love. A lot of people want to run around and claim to be a Christian. And John says the evidence of that is that we love the brothers. You, you, you want to name Jesus as, your, as your, your God, as your Savior, as your Lord? The proof's in the pudding is their love. It's the love of Christ that motivates our love. The Apostle Paul writes it this way, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that's Jesus, therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's because because Jesus loved us that we love 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says just that. We love because he first loved us. Jesus laid down his life for us. Death is the ultimate sacrifice. And we too here, in the rest of verse 16, are called to lay down our lives. Look at it. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that could certainly mean physical death that we literally die for one another. It it may very well be applicable there, but it's not only applicable there. When we read the apostles' words in Ephesians chapter five, and husbands are to love their wives and to, to give themselves as Christ gave himself for the church, it doesn't only mean that we are physically crucified for our wives. It means that we give ourselves up that we die to ourselves, we yield our desires, we no longer live for ourselves. It's not some mere grand act of martyrdom, it's the everyday acts of compassion. And John identified how indifference to others shows the absence of this love. Look at verse 17. but, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Uh, Jared Wilson, an author and pastor, says, most of us are prepared to love others only up to the point where it begins to actually cost us. This is the issue that John is dealing with, right? Love actually does something. One theologian notes here that there are three conditions, though, that, that, that need to be met. Look, look at it again. If anyone has this, the world's goods, in order to meet a need, you must actually have the means to meet that need, right? If you don't have the means to meet the need, then, then you're not the person to meet the need. Secondly, and sees his brother in need. We actually need to know about the need. There are needs that you don't know about. And therefore, you're not responsible to meet those needs. He goes on, but if those two things are true, if we have the world's goods, if we have means, and if we know about it, the rest of the verse, yet closes his heart against him. Thirdly, we must actually have the love to do it. We must actually have the compassion to do it. When this says, yet closes his heart against him, this is referring to the absence of compassion, not having compassion. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is, uh, he sees all the people and they're, they're wanting to be fed, right? And, and Jesus says, it says that Jesus sees the, them as sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. This word compassion and this phrasing yet closes his heart against him are, are similar in their roots. 
One has compassion, this, this great affection, and the other is the absence of that. That's what we have here in verse 17. Yet closes his heart against him. Jesus had the means, he knew the need, and in love he acted. In this way, he provided food for 5,000 people. For some of us, at points in time, we do not meet condition number one. Sometimes we don't meet condition number two. But when we do meet both, we must have number three. Because if we don't have number three, the reality is what the rest of the verse says, that God's love is not abiding in us. John actually asks a rhetorical question. How does God's love abide in him? Right? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. The love of God does not abide in the one who has the means, sees the need, and does not do anything about it. Well, John concludes this section in verse 18. Little children. Again, a favorite uh, favorite use there of John. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Our walk, and you know this, you know this from experience, right? Our walk always speaks louder than whatever we say, right? We can say all the right things, but our actions tell the story. James chapter 2 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking for daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What, what good is talk if there's no action? That's not love. Basically, what John is saying is don't talk about love. Do something. Do something. On May, May 29th, 1914, the Empress of Ireland sank. It's a ship. Uh, with 130 Salvation Army officers on board. 109 of those officers drowned, and not one of the bodies that was picked up had a life belt on. The few survivors told how the salvationists, as they were called, finding that there was not enough life preservers for all, took off their own life belts and strapped them upon even stronger men, saying, I can die better than you. From the deck of that sinking ship, they heralded their battle cry around the world, others. Love in action. Now, you may not be called to give up your life this week for the brothers. You may not be called to give up your physical or proverbial life preserver. However, how can you love someone this week? How can you love someone in deed and in truth, in action? and in truth this week. Well, finally, verses 19 through 24 tells us what love does for the believer. It gives us three blessings or advantages. Verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. By this, what's the this? This actually reaches back into verses 17 and 18. By what? By love. We could say, by loving others, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God. And the first great blessing of loving for the believer is assurance. By loving one another, we reassure our hearts before God. This is what love does. It gives us assurance of who we are. The presence of love indicates who we are. It indicates that we are a child of God. And remember, this is not some, some general sense of love. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that doesn't love someone who loves them back only. It's a love that loves because God is love. But John then recognizes that sometimes there are doubts. There are doubts. Look at verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, so there are times when, when we're condemned, right? 
Sometimes we don't have all the assurance in the world. Sometimes we wonder, am I really a Christian? <laughs> I, I don't even know. Maybe I'm not, that, maybe I'm not right with God. Look, look at my life. Look at all the, the things that I've done, so on and so forth. Sometimes our hearts condemn us. Sometimes we have insecurities that may come. Sometimes they come because we are not right with God. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we, we, we feel far from God because we are far from God. And if that's true then we need to, to remember the words of, of chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's hope. But sometimes our insecurities and our doubts come because we're too hard on ourselves. Warren Wearsby writes, no Christian should take sin lightly, but no Christian should be harder on himself than God is. Meaning this, that if God promises to forgive us of our sins, and he has. For those who will confess, he has promised to forgive us of our sins. And if he has promised that, then guess what that means? Our sins are forgiven. Christian, if you have confessed your sins to God, he has forgiven you of your sins. Christ has paid for your sins. You are pardoned of your sins. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you need to hear that this morning. That your sins are forgiven. You're living in your past sins. If you have confessed your sins, if you've confessed your sins, you can know today that they are forgiven. That God has removed those sins. He has blotted them out. He remembers them no more. He does not bring them up. And so, if they're being brought up, that is not from God. If, if the tape is playing in your mind of all the past sins that you have done, that is not God. That is not God shaming you. That's not how God works. God leads us to repentance, not through shame, but how? Through kindness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So God is not shaming you this morning. Christian, if, if, if you're replaying your sins over and over again, there is one who's doing that to you. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he wants to remind you of all your failures and bring into doubt all the reasons why you, you, you really shouldn't even be a Christian or call yourself a Christian. But John says here in verse 20, for whenever our hearts condemn us, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God is greater than our hearts. Do you know that your security with God is not based upon your work? It's not based on how you feel. Sometimes we talk about assurance of salvation and security of salvation. Those two things aren't actually the same. You may not feel as sure, but you are certainly secure. On the other hand, sometimes we feel assurance that we shouldn't feel. They're not the same thing. One is about how I feel. The other is what's, what God says is true. And this is what God says to the Christian in Jude chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God holds you together. Even when our hearts condemn us, what? God is greater than our hearts. God knows everything. He knows whether you're not, not you're, you're, you're his, his child. God knows those who are his. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Our assurance is, not, is based on how we feel. Security is based on God. And God knows everything. And for the Christian, you can know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So even if your heart condemns you, Christian, God is greater. The first blessing of, of the activity of love in your life is assurance. The second we see in verses 21 and 22, follow along. Beloved, again, another favorite of John, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because he keeps his commands, because, uh, because he keeps his commands and does what pleases him. 
whatever we ask of, from him because we keep his commands and do what, he, uh, what pleases him. So John is saying here, Christians uh, whose hearts are sincere, who, whose hearts don't condemn them, uh, because why? Because they're, they're loving the brothers. They have confidence before God that they're not condemned. They can know what? They can know that their prayers are being heard. They, they, what they ask, they will receive, verse 22 says. And why? Because we keep his commandments and do what, he, what pleases him. Now, you, you could read this and come to the conclusion that if I obey God, then that means God does for me, right? I do for God, God does for me. That is not what John is, is teaching here at all. Rather, the obedience here is in response to God. It's evidence of our faith. It's not in order to get from God. It's because we've already received from God. And whatever we ask, Jesus says, in accordance with his will or in his name will be given to us. Now, we don't always know what's according to his will. We pray like Jesus prayed in the garden. Nevertheless, let your will be done. And sometimes our requests aren't, aren't answered the way we want them to be answered. Timothy Keller says this, though. He, if we knew what God knew, we would want what God wants. And so when we pray, maybe we might even say something to that degree to God. God, this is what I want. But what I really want is what you want. And so your will be done. Finally, John revisits the, the concept of abiding in the next verses with this, this third blessing of love. But before getting that to verse 24, he adds a, a summary statement in verse 23. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Here we see faith and love going together into one single command. This is his command. It's singular. What is it? That we believe and that we love. Again, David Allen says the gospel is not only something to, be, to believe, but something to be obeyed. And all people are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. These were Jesus' opening words to his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is a commandment. That's not just an invitation. That is a commandment. That's, that's a, an announcement, a herald to all who hear. The kingdom is here. What must you do? You must repent of your sins and believe the gospel of God. Well, John ends with verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Right? For those who keep his commandments, for, for those who keep the commandment to believe and to love, they have fellowship with him. They abide in him. They remain in him. They live in him. Jesus says this in John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And how have they done that? But through the Spirit's. That's exactly what the Spirit of God does in the Christian. It makes, he makes his home with us. Look at the rest of verse 24. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom he has given to us. The Spirit is the evidence that we are God's and that God is in us. For those who love God, there is an assurance of who we are. There's a promise of answered prayer. And there is the confidence that God is with us. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So many promises. So many promises for the Christian. So many promises for those Christians today who not only make profession of faith, but back it up with their love. Christians, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Christians often are referred to as people of the truth. That's what we, we think of ourselves, because of the word of truth. Well, then let our, let, our, let our love be of truth then too. Let's end by looking just into chapter four. We'll get to this passage in a couple weeks, but look at verses 10 and 11. 
We'll read these as we close. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. It sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Christian, this is how the world will know that you are a Christian. If you love one another. May God help us to do it this week. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? There's many of us this morning who recognize that there, there are times when we're not living up to, to our profession. That we've claimed something that our lives are not live, living, living up to. And for that, Father, we repent. And we ask for your grace to love like Jesus loved. And we know that that's possible because of the Spirit in us. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so, Father, for those of us indwelt by the Spirit, who, in whom the, the Spirit of God abides or remains, and Father, we can love this week. Not in our own power. But because of your grace in our life. So, Father, would you even help us right now consider as we think about our week, as we think about the people in our lives, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our, our faith family, what ways can we love each other well? Not so that we get the glory. Jesus reminds us that to be salt and light in this world is not so that, so that people see us, but so they see you and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father, help us to glorify our Father, you who are in heaven this week as we love one another. For those of us today who have yet to come to Christ, I pray that they would see the love of Christ today. This one who laid down his life for us. This one who, while we were still sinners, died for us. This one who literally gave his life that we might have life eternal. God, I pray that they would see Jesus today. They would see him as the savior from their sins and the Lord, the king of their life. And in response, they would repent of their sins and trust you for that salvation. I pray that they might even do that even now as the spirit of God convicts them. And we'll give thanks. Father, we pray all these things to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our God.